but I want to read to you from Ephesians 4. We're going to read from the first verse through to verse 13, and we're going to focus on a middle section there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's still some at the back. Feel free to go grab one. Let's read from Ephesians 4, 1 to 13. Paul says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, I ask that as we now open and consider this deeply encouraging and challenging text, Lord, I pray that you'll give us eyes to envision what is you have in store for your church and ears to hear its application to our own hearts. Lord, a will to respond to you as we serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you haven't been with us, you must understand that the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul's been casting out a theological vision for what the church is as a miraculous, a supernatural institution or organization because through the uniting blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for us, he has reconciled us from different backgrounds, nations, people, groups, and brought us into the extraordinary reality of being the church. And the church has ever since the ascension of Christ and its birth in the book of Acts and the work of men like Paul throughout the centuries in founding, establishing new congregations all around the world. The church has been growing and drawing in people groups from all around the world to form this new organization or organism, this institution that is described in the New Testament as the body of Christ. That's the theological vision. But now what he's interested in is the practical reality. And this whole section that I read to you in Ephesians 4 is particularly talking about this problem of how the church can live out this newness of being one new organism. How we can be, as he calls it, 
earlier in the letter, one new man in Christ. And particularly how we can become united and grow into the maturity and the full stature of what we're meant to be as God's people. And that has been his interest um, really all through the letters to the Ephesians, but now he's bringing it home to a practical take-home and how this can happen. Evidently, that's his concern here, which is why he stresses things like this. He says that we're, we are, there is one body, one spirit, just as you call to the one hope, and so on. The oneness of the church. Now, this is the problem against which we need to understand what he's saying here. This oneness, this unity of God's people is hard to imagine. Seated as we are here in our context in the 21st century, and you survey the global scene, and what you rather see is something like 45,000 different denominations of Christianity, of which no doubt a number of them are cults, and not really Christians at all. And on top of that, the many segregations that we see. So in a city like London, which actually in many ways more resembles heaven than um, some of the more rural parts of the United Kingdom because of the diversity and the beauty of people coming together. You know, it's been said that there is more division or segregation on Sunday mornings than at any other time because Christians very often worship in their own uh, pockets, particularly along racial and ethnic boundaries, but along other boundaries as well. And so when you think about the global scene, the state of the church globally, the capital C church, it is difficult to imagine the unity, the oneness, the maturity that, that Paul's talking about here in this letter. And it's hard to imagine that when you think about a local church, even a church like ours as well. I think we do enjoy something of the, the joy of unity. But there's always problems in any church. You've been in a church for long enough, you know there's problems. And you know that there are problems, there are frictions, that there are churches that, that creak with all the relational tensions and difficulties. There's a problem of the fact that many people who are part of churches are not fully engaged, heart and soul. And that that has an effect. It has a deadening effect, like a fire blanket upon the vital spirituality of a congregation when, when many people and many churches are really going through the motions. They're living in nominal faith. And when there's hypocrisy or when there's division or all kinds of problems that exist within local congregations, you put this whole picture together and it feels to me like there's an incredible amount of work to be done and there are reasons why you might doubt the vision that Paul's talking about here of the beauty of oneness and the maturity of the people of God globally and locally. Now, what we've been interested in up to this point when we took apart the first section of this chapter was the answer that Paul gives to begin with is around our personal godliness, your personal godliness and Christ-likeness as being absolutely essential to the health of the church to which you belong. This is why he begins this section by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In other words, if we give way to our sinful tendencies, it's our sin that will divide us, our selfishness, our isolation, our anger, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, our frustrations with each other, all those kinds of things are what divide us. 
And so he says, you've got to walk worthily. You've been called. It's not that you have to become worthy in order to be a Christian. But now that you are a Christian, he's saying, you need to live it out. And when believers live lives of holiness and passion and godliness, and the They fulfill the things he described here of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. When that is done, then you begin to taste something of heaven on earth. You begin to taste something of the fragrance of the presence of God within a church family. And I I believe I've seen that time and time again. I've tasted it. I've participated in it. I know what it's like to walk with brothers and sisters who are becoming more like Christ. And of course, the onus is on each of us to want to grow deeper in our faith. Now that's been what he was interested in to begin with, but now his focus shifts. And now what he's interested in is the gifts that Jesus has equipped the church with in order to sustain us and strengthen us to build towards the unity and maturity over the course of the centuries of the church's existence. This is where the transition comes in verse 7. He says, but grace, or you could translate it gifts, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so this is what we're interested in this morning, is how the Lord Jesus has left us well-provisioned and equipped in order to build the kind of beautiful church that glorifies him in the time that we are here on earth. Part of the tragedy of warfare and what has played out time and again, and I think particularly when I cast my mind back to the history books, what I read around the First World War when I was studying that era, was the fact that so many of our troops who went across, the British Expeditionary Force went across to France to go and oppose the Germans. And one of the great tragedies was that they were completely unprepared and ill-equipped for the changes that were taking place in modern warfare. Suddenly, men with rifles and bayonets were faced with machine guns and gases and eventually, you know, powerful artillery And they were going across still with rifles, bayonets, and horses. And what ended up taking place was an incredible loss of life because of the folly of the commanders-in-chief who, it was said that the, the troops were lions led by donkeys. They had all the bravery and courage that you expect of a standing army. But what they lacked at the time was the knowledge and wisdom and insight to know how to fight the new methods of warfare. And so they were still operating along the old style. They were sending troops in en masse to face the enemy, and they were being mowed down and slaughtered. And of course, the great criticisms that the historians have leveled against those leaders was their lack of understanding and the, the, the lack of equipment that they did not prepare their own soldiers to go into war. And what, the reason why I mention that is because what Paul is emphasizing here in this passage is the Lord Jesus Christ is no such commander-in-chief. That he has not left us without the right provisions and equipment and abilities to be and do all that we are called to be and do as God's people. And that is what we need to be interested in. 
How has the Lord Jesus equipped us? What gifts has he given us in order for us to fulfill the calling that the church is meant to fulfill here on earth and to be the people that God has called us to be? And this will speak to different ones of you. It'll speak to those of you who are doubters. There has, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, there was news, wasn't there, that for the first time there are there are more people who no longer identify as having any faith at all in the UK. That, 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 that has tipped over the 50% mark. People who don't believe in God at all. And of course, that's against the backdrop of the decimation of Christianity and of churches, the closure of churches across the land. And many people who have abandoned the faith, generations who failed to pass on the faith to their children and their children's children. And there are therefore many people who doubt the future of the church. They say, listen, it cannot stand the forces of secularism. It's an institution that belongs to a a bygone age. So there may be doubters among you. And if you doubt, the effect is, of course, that you want to hold back. You know, if you could take yourself back to 6 o'clock yesterday evening, would you put a bet on England winning that game now that you know what you know? And, of course, the answer is no. If you know the end and the end is a... a, a a depressing defeat, then you do not invest into, into that thing. And the same is true of church. If, if all you see for the future of the church is continued decline and decimation and defeat, then the last thing that you're going to do is invest your life and soul into her. And it may be the reason why you haven't. Because consciously or unconsciously, openly or secretly, you think this is a sinking ship. There may be doubters. There are also those of you who have been disillusioned by church. And of course, any of us who've been in and around God's family for long enough will have suffered some of the hurts that you experience in, in community. It's inevitable. Sometimes those pangs and hurts and wounds strike deep. One of the, the fashions you could describe it as, or the trends of the day in which we are living, is more and more people reacting against the church by and the language is deconstructing their faith. Of course, the, first, the only time I ever knew that word being used was in programs like MasterChef, where they give you an apple crumble that was deconstructed. You know, you take the apples to one side, the crumble to the other side, and you, you deconstruct the thing. And that's what people are doing to their faith. They're taking it apart, they're questioning it, and many of them are abandoning it. And a lot of that stems from hurt. It stems from the deep wounds that you can experience amongst sinners, like you and like me. So the disillusioned and the doubters need to hear a hopeful word. And of course, what Paul has to say here, though, ultimately speaks to every single one of you because, as you'll see, the application is very personal to your own devotion and service and calling towards God's body. Three gifts that Paul says Christ has given to his church. The first gift he has given is himself. It says from verse 7 that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, and then he describes it in this way. He says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he's quoting Psalm 68 here, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, what Paul is describing here had so much more resonance for, the, for ancient people. Because 
of the vulnerability of living in a world where borders, national borders, and nationhood itself was constantly under threat. For the last 70 years or so, we have lived in the era of the United Nations when after the Second World War, 50 or so nations came together to form a pact or an agreement that more or less settled the question of nationhood and borders and boundaries so that wars in which great imperial powers thought that it was appropriate to invade neighboring nations and and overtake them became less and less common, at least in the West and, and particularly in Europe that in the couple of millennia prior to that was just conquest after conquest. It was like the game of risk all the time, which many of you would be playing over Christmas, but it was tragic and full of bloodshed. And so we've lived in an era where, you know, if, if you've grown up in Britain, as I have, you don't really live with the sense of threat that the French or the Germans are going to send another, um, you know, they're going to they're kind of come and try and take over. You don't live with that sense of threat, which is why we're so shocked when Russia invaded Ukraine um, some months back and why we're taken aback. We thought this was the kind of behavior that we put in the past, which makes it hard for us to understand the, the outlook of a first century Christian. The people that Paul was writing to did not live with that measure of certainty and security. They, they were constantly feeling the sense of threat. And in fact, men, most of the people in the church to which he wrote were people themselves who had been defeated or were living under an oppressive regime. They were not Romans, but they were living under Roman rule. And you ask yourself the question, if that was the kind of level of insecurity with which you lived in your normal day-to-day life, where did you put your hope? And the answer, I, I believe, for the ancient mind was always kings and leaders. The hope was for someone to arise with the the authority and the wisdom and perhaps the aggression, but also the capability to, to, to push back enemies and to protect their people. And this was an absolute essential if you lived in the ancient world. And of course, this is true specifically for the Jews, Paul's own people. You read your Old Testament, the the history of the nation of Israel. It is the story of the rise and the fall and the rise and the fall in endless cycles that so often was tethered to the ability of their leaders or their kings. That when God raised up godly kings and leaders, the nation was secure and protected. And then when unwise or ungodly men came to take the throne, the nation so often was decimated or destroyed or the people were exiled. And this cycle played out over and over again. You read the the books of 1 and 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's the rise and the fall. And what this does is it creates within people a yearning, a longing for the kind of leadership that will ensure security and success, protection, unity, of course, they could look back as a people to the, to the golden era when they, rem- they remember the days of King David and his son Solomon when the kingdom was at its, at its peak, its largest, with its most wealth and military strength and all these kinds of things that held them together as a people under those great kings. 
And the question that always lived in the Jewish mind was, when will God raise up another David? Because our unity and our prosperity and our protection as a people depends upon God raising up a leader. This is why we read every Christmas, we read this passage in Isaiah 9, which is mirrored in many other Old Testament prophecies, but speaks of the coming of such a leader. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Everything depended on whether this prophecy would be fulfilled or not. Will God's people have a leader? capable and able to lead his people towards that prosperity, that unity, the beauty of being one. And this is why Paul pulls on this psalm, Psalm 68 here in Ephesians 4. The psalm is actually about God himself as a conquering king. And what it describes was an ancient practice of when a conquering king would go out to war to win battles, he would come home And in his train or his retinue or following him, in tow would be conquered peoples and wealth. He'd bring the, the enemies that he conquered, the generals and kings of the opposing nations, and he'd bring all their wealth with him in a great procession back into the city. And here it's envisioned in Psalm 68 as into Jerusalem. God conquering the nations and bringing the kings and the wealth of the nations into his kingdom. And then distributing gifts among his people as the wealth and the prosperity and the plunder is shared around. Now the reason why you have to hear this is this, friends. Paul's saying that king is Jesus. And more than that, he's saying, look, if you just look around you, as I described at the beginning, and you see problems in the church, you see the church in some areas on on the wane, diminishing. You see churches that are hurting at times and divided. You see what you could think of as just a flawed, broken institution, the 45,000 or so denominations that separate us from each other. And you could imagine and dismiss the church as a purely human organization or institution with all the failings you expect of human leadership. What Paul's saying here is this, listen friends, Christ has come. He says he descended into the lower regions of the earth. Describing, of course, what we are celebrating here at Christmas when God took on flesh to come among us and so lived a life in which he earned his stripes, so to speak, to lead us to victory over death and over sin and over division, and over all the things that separate us one from another. He came to triumphantly conquer the enemies that separate us, and then he ascended to the Father's right hand. That's what he describes here. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave his gifts to men. 
describing the Lord Jesus Christ taking his place at the Father's right hand where he sits enthroned as a non-anxious presence, unruffled by the events of history, unconcerned in one sense about the future of his people and of his kingdom because he has ascended on high and he is absolutely in control. And while there are times and moments in our lives where you think that the evidence that you see with your eyes does not match up with the promise and the certainty and the security of this great king who would usher in an era of peace and of justice and of the removal of oppression and darkness and and all the hatred that we see in and around us. What Paul's saying is here, Christ is enthroned. And what does he say about that enthronement? He says that he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, that he might fill all things. This is one of the, this is the reason for which even when there would have been the very discouragements that you and I experience when we think about the state of church, the church globally and churches like ours, the very discouragements that that might cause you to withhold, step back, doubt, Paul saw all those things himself. But he felt this inner compulsion to continually pour his life out for the sake of the future of the church. And of course, what we see around us today is so much more beautiful and more magnificent than what he saw in his day. And you ask the question, why? Why was he willing to pick himself up and go again when even the churches that he founded and planted sometimes turned on him and bickering and anger and division? Why was he willing never to doubt but always felt secure in the certainty of the future of his church? It's because of what he's saying here, that he who ascended will fill all things. It's what he says in his other letters, in the next letters in the New Testament. Philippians 2, for example, he says that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The future of God's people and of the church is certain, and the future of Christ's kingdom can never be shaken. It's what he describes in the next letter in Colossians. When describing the coming of Christ, the image of the invisible God, he said, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Now this means, friends, that as cozy, higger, is that the word? And Twinkly and delightful as the Christmas season is, the coming of Jesus was the beginning of the end for all the forces of darkness in this world. It was a war cry. The arrival of Jesus on earth, the gift of himself to us, was the most threatening, revolutionary, dynamic, pivotal moment in all of history And the consequences of the coming of Jesus and of his rule and reign and his ascension to the Father's right hand are still being worked out and are yet to reach their full consummation, but they certainly will.
when that vision is fixed in your mind, when you believe it down to the roots of your very being, the soles of your feet, you cannot help but offer your life for such a king. Where else would you want to give your life, your time, your talents, your skills, your resources, all that you are? You want to give them to him, the victorious king, that he might fill all things. The first gift that Jesus gives us is himself. The most important gift, of course. The second gift he gives us is leaders. It's what Paul immediately adds here at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the the shepherds and teachers. Now, let me just briefly explain what these terms mean. And then I want to help you understand the significance of them. Apostles. Long debated. Um, And I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this one, but to my mind, it's evident that the New Testament teaches a couple of types of apostles. There were the original apostles of the Lamb, the 12 apostles who are described in Revelation as the apostles of the Lamb. The, The foundation of the church, the unreplaceable generation of eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ who, who, who gave us and transmitted to us the gospel. But then there were others. Men like Timothy and Silvanus and Barnabas who were apostles in a different sense and their calling was to break new ground and establish the missions and build churches. And I have no question or doubt in my mind but that the same gift of apostleship is at work in the world today. That God raises up apostles whose job is to further the the boundaries of the kingdom by planting churches and extending the mission of God and building up strength within the kingdom. Apostles, that's the first one. He mentions prophets. If you know your New Testament, you know that the gift of prophecy was widely distributed among God's people. That there's a sense in which all of God's children can hear the Father's voice. But what, there were also those individuals in the New Testament named as prophets. There were, Philip had four daughters who were described as prophets or prophetesses. Agabus in Acts 21, the same chapter, is named as a prophet. He foresaw a great famine. And throughout the history of the church, there have been extraordinary stories of individuals who seem to hear from God with a a particular clarity and ability that they are undoubtedly hearing directly from the Lord in certain extraordinary ways. Prophets, you could almost think with a capital P, people who seem to have that extraordinary ability to hear from God. Apostles and prophets. Then he mentions evangelists. Now again, this is the calling of all Christians to share the gospel, to evangelize. But there were, in the era of the New Testament, individuals who seemed to have an extraordinary ability to not just burning with a heart for the lost who don't know Jesus, but an an ability to win the lost and bring them into the kingdom. Philip, who I just mentioned, whose, whose four daughters were called prophetesses. Philip is named as an evangelist in Acts chapter 8 because he, he went into Samaria and he saw many, many people coming, becoming followers of Jesus through his preaching. An extraordinary gift. In the last century, you could think of the gift of Billy Graham. My own father was converted listening to Billy Graham preach. And I have met countless people over the years who have either either themselves or their pastor or their dads or their parents were, were converted listening to, to Billy Graham. I don't know that there's ever been a gift quite like of his stature ability in the history of the church. And you think, well, he's an evangelist with a capital E. He was. 
And then he mentions shepherds and teachers. Again, lots of discussion here around whether this is two people or one type of person or whatever that is. I think you can easily begin to see how within eldership teams and within churches, there are some who are more shepherdly and some who are more teachy. And no prizes for guessing which of your elders is which in this particular context. Um, Michael Eaton wrote this. He said, pastors or shepherds are teachers who are good with people. Teachers are pastors who are good at exposition. The two are close to each other. Pastors spend more time with people. Teachers spend more time with their Bible. Anyway. (laughs) We put all this together. The four or the five-fold ministries, these are the word ministries, the gifts that Jesus has given to his church. Now, this is the point I want you to understand here, what, what Paul, I think, is really the emphasis Paul wants us to see here. That when he describes these gifts, he's not talking about spiritual gifts. If you know your New Testament, you've read letters like 1 Thessalonians and, and 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter, you'll know that there is such a thing as spiritual gifts, that the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to his people. Abilities that range from things like administration to to the gift of healing, the gift of faith, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, all these kinds of gifts distributed among God's people. That is not what Paul's saying here. He's not talking about the general distribution of gifts. What he's talking about, rather, the gifts are the people themselves. And that's an important distinction. Think of it in terms of marriage. Before you marry, as you imagine and envision your future spouse, if you want to get married, you, you perhaps form something of a mental checklist, or maybe a physical checklist, if you're really that way inclined. But you have a list of really gifts that you hope this person possesses, maybe a certain measure of attractiveness, maybe um, an, a, intelligence, or maybe good humor, maybe a a sizable bank balance. Whatever it is that you you put on this this lift of gifts is there and you imagine this person possessing certain gifts and you think that I can have a successful relationship with just such a person. After you marry, you begin to see that the person themselves is the gift. You say, God gave you to me. You are the gift. And maybe I could have married any number of other people in this world, but God chose you specifically under his sovereignty that you should be the gift for me. And I think something like that is what's going on here. Now, this is why why does this matter? It's not so that you'll go around and thinking of me and the elders here as God's gift to you. (laughs) The unlikely, as Jeremy says, yeah. Very, very unlikely. But rather, this is about honoring Jesus. It's about honoring his ability as the supreme authority over his church to sovereignly appoint the right people at the right times. That he hasn't been like a farmer just scattering seed around, just tossing out spiritual gifts everywhere and just see what happens. Maybe some of them will take, some of them won't. Let's just see how things pan out. No, no, no. Jesus is a sovereign Lord who gets in among his people and puts his hand on individuals and calls them and sets them apart for specific work. This is something you see all through Scripture. Let me read to you a few of my favorite passages that indicate this. Jeremiah 1. God speaks to Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. 
I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage of the calling of that great prophet. He needed to know that he was called because his specific calling was miserable, but God set him apart to do it. Acts 13, I love this story. The church elders are gathered in, in, in Antioch. They're worshiping and they're fasting together in prayer. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to them. And he says this to them. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, and that's the Apostle Paul, for the work to which I have called them. And then they fast and pray and they lay their hands on them and they send them off. And that's the first missionary journey in the history of of, of the church begins because God says I called these two individuals to the apostolic work of sharing the gospel in 2nd Timothy when Paul's writing to Timothy many many years this is the last letter he ever wrote reflecting back on the life and the calling that he lived all the sacrifices he'd made the exertions all those kinds of things this is how he describes it he talks about the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul could say, because I know that God put his hand on me and called me to this work, I'm willing, I was willing to suffer for it. And it seems to me that very often those who are most energized and most persistent and most persevering in the work of serving the Lord Jesus Christ are those who feel that deep sense of calling. Now, I stress this for a couple of reasons. The reason why I'm stressing that that Jesus specifically appoints and gives individuals to his church for its leadership and growth is to address a couple of things. One is because it addresses those who see the church as a purely human institution. You say, well, the problem is the problem with, this church, with churches is that they're just man-made structures or institutions. And we don't need that. All we need is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, our Bibles. The church is just an artificial layer on my authentic spirituality. And I can take or leave it. Now, that's a sentiment I, I trust doesn't exist here because you're actually in this room. But there are many people who do think and feel that way. And maybe it's something that you've toyed with, where you felt the disappointments or disillusionments with church and its failings, because no church is perfect. You see all the shortcomings, and you think, well, the problem is it's a man-made institution. All I need to do is just withdraw into my individual spirituality, and things will be fine, because all I need is Jesus and my Bible. Interestingly enough, around 500 years ago, John Calvin, writing in in Geneva, where he oversaw the the work of the church in that city, addressed that same issue. It was occurring then as well. And he says this. He always likes to speak with strong language. He says, They therefore are insane who, neglecting this means, and he's talking about the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, neglecting this means, hope to be perfect in Christ. As is the case with fanatics, who pretend to secret revelations of the Spirit, he was not a charismatic, and the proud who content themselves with a private reading of the Scriptures and imagine that they do not need the ministry of the church. So he's saying that even then there were people who withdrew from the church and says, I just am fed by the Holy Spirit and by reading my Bible. I don't need the church. And Calvin's saying, you're insane and you're a fanatic. You're a lunatic. 
Because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's sovereign Lord over his church, has, has designed and built the church in such a way, and he's given gifts to the church, and one of the gifts he's given are the individuals who lead it. That's not to say that every church is led by God-appointed leaders, or that every leader is appointed by God. I'm sure that there are many charlatans, and fakes, and frauds, and hypocrites, which explains so much of the unhealth we see around. I have no doubt about that, and it requires discernment. But we do not throw out the baby with the bath water. It addresses you if you think the church is a human institution. It is not. It is Christ's institution, led by Jesus and the leaders that he appoints. And it also speaks to those of you who yourselves are called to these kinds of roles and leadership. If Jesus is Lord, then he is the one who calls and appoints people to his work. And I stress that because I think there are many in history who have been resistant to the work of the Spirit in them to call them to this task. We see it in Scripture. We see it in the life of Jonah, don't we? And you think, if, if, if Christ's gift is to appoint you, it's like, it's like the unwanted Christmas present, the one that you re-gift at the next earliest opportunity. We had our staff Christmas meal on Thursday, and we, the, the stipulation for our secret Santa was that you had to re-gift something that was in your home. And some of the gifts were shocking. <laughs> you know, we, we ended up with a, with a, a cheese-making kit, and um, an ug- the ugliest candlestick you've ever seen in your life. These are re-gifts. And you may be the case that the Lord has spoken to you and you've just received it like an unwanted present with a polite smile and then pushing it to one side. And of course, that's disobedience. And the Lord calls individuals to his work. And when he calls you to his work, you give yourself heart and soul. It requires the discernment of community and of those around you, of course. But don't withhold. And this brings me to the last gift. If the Lord Jesus Christ has given gifts to his church to ensure her unity, her maturity, her success, and those gifts are himself, the God-appointed leaders that Paul has listed here, the final gift he gives to his church, dear brothers and sisters, is you. Look at what he says in verse 12. Having just listed the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, he then says, to equip the saints. Which, of course, Catholics are wrong on this. The saints are not a distinct and elite group of individuals to whom you can pray. That's complete nonsense. In Scripture, a saint is anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord and is cleansed by his blood. You a Christian? Well, friend, you're a saint. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, this is striking. Because although 
you will have heard me. I, I do not question the value of leaders within God's church, God's appointed leaders. I don't question the value of them, but we need to re-understand what they are given to the church for. They are not called themselves to just do the work. Like, like Christmas dinner in my house, when I and the children take no part whatsoever, and my wife is fully engaged, and to my great shame, but, you know, this is how things pan out. And you think maybe that's how church ought to be. Certain individuals do all the work, and others are just mere passengers in, on the ride. And you can compare here. What he rather says is that the leaders are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for training and equipping and, in, and releasing into the work of being servants of Christ. And the difference is then between a cruise ship and a warship. A cruise ship is a depressing thought to my mind. It's, 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 it's lounging around enjoying second-rate entertainment in the confinement of many other people for endless weeks or however long it takes at sea where you're likely to feel sick and under the blazing sun, which I'm allergic to. So... Put all that together, it's not, a, it's not a picture I enjoy. But many people, that's exactly what they think church is. Not exactly, but you know, it's like being trapped with lots of people with second-rate entertainment, and churches sometimes perpetuate that by the way they conduct their church life. A warship, on the other hand, nobody on a warship is without a role or a purpose or a function. The phrase, all hands on deck, is the cry of the warship where every person must man their stations. And the vision there is that every person there is not only trained but understands the mission of God and also is willing to give themselves to it. And I, you know, it would not be difficult, would it, to examine your life and to discern whether if you're a follower of Jesus you think you're on a cruise ship or a warship. We just look at how your heart and your attitude to the mission of God and your engagement with the church. It doesn't take much discernment to understand which of those two models you, you think you're engaged with. What does it mean for you personally? Let me just emphasize this as I bring it to a close. It means, first of all, that you are called. You are called to the work of ministry. You are called. Can, can compare here the situation with, in, in military terms, again, and this is a military analogy Paul uses here, which is why I'm returning to this vision, between conscripts and volunteers. Ordinarily, in the history of our nation, where we had a standing army, those, those soldiers have been volunteers. Men who have elected or chosen to go into the, the armed forces. And the rest of the nation says, that's great, I'm glad you're there, but it's not for me. But then, of course, there have been moments and seasons in our history where the need has been so dire that the call has gone out. Your nation needs you. Conscription has become the norm in which every individual must serve the greater cause. The women in the Second World War were going into the factories. Men were joining the front lines. And the whole picture was one of a people united working together because they were conscripted into the army. 
And that is actually how the Lord Jesus Christ has run his church. If you're called to be a a saint, if if you're a follower of Jesus, understand this, brother or sister, you're a conscript. And you can't distance yourself and say, well, I'm very glad that there are some super enthusiastic volunteers who keep the church running. It's not for me. I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing other things. But no, rather, you're involved in the mission in some capacity, shape, or form. That's my first point. You are called. The second is you are called to be a minister of a, or a servant here. A minister is a confusing word because it's used in many different ways, including in the New Testament. Paul calls himself a minister of the gospel. He's talking about his apostleship. The word is also the word for deacon. So we know a certain group in the church who are set apart as ministers or deacons to serve the church. But here we're talking about a different, a different use of the word. It really just means servant. And here, here my point is this, that there, there are different ways that we're served. Some people are ministers of the gospel, full-time evangelists, apostles, pastors, whatever else. Others are deacons within churches. But everyone is a servant of the gospel. Everybody is a minister. So we recognize that, and you need to see it about yourself. It's a new way of thinking of who you are. It's actually, you can, you can wear that label. You can put it on your business card. I'm a minister of Christ. Sign off on your email. Does anyone use email these days? I'm not sure. Your ministry, final point here will most likely be informal and organic. And I cannot stress this enough. This is how the church is supposed to function. There are official offices within the church, the elders and deacons, and the gifts that we've mentioned of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But the church, and the analogy we love to return to is that the church is like a trellis and a vine. The trellis is the official structures that exist a trellis is those, that, those lattices of woodwork, that vertical and horizontal slats that you can put up against a wall. And there are the official structures within the church, appointed leaders that exist officially to serve the church and, and her work. But the point of a trellis, a trellis is not a beautiful thing. It doesn't exist for its own sake or its own benefit. It exists to support the health of the vine that grows on the trellis. In our outside space, as we call them in London, we have a big pot with a jasmine plant in it, and it's finding its way to grow through our slats of the fence around our outside space. And the larger this thing grows, the more beautiful it becomes, because that's where the life is, in the vine. And you have to understand this, friends, most of the work of the church is what takes place in the organic and informal ways that you live out your Christian life, interacting with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and also your work in the world. And when you understand that, listen, this is how it works. It begins, it begins with the absolute necessity, the first thing to emphasize here is the vital walk with the Lord Jesus Christ that you must have in your life. If you were to be a healthy part of the vine, it's what we were talking about in the summer, John 15, when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. 
It begins with you having a, a vital relationship with Jesus. If you want to have an impact upon God's work in this world and the health of the church, begin with having a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Pursue him. Speak to him. Listen to him. Open his word. Walk in holiness. Repent of your sin. Live out the Christian life. Then, beyond that, it's about everything that you are and do. It's all the interactions of all your life that are part of this organic vine work. It's not a specific role necessarily that you fulfill for the church. I set out the chairs on a Sunday. That's very helpful. I'm very grateful for you who do. But that isn't the sum total of the vine work. The vine work is everything that you are as a Christian. Every single interaction that you, you have with others, positive or negative, you are always influencing others either towards or away from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a sobering thought. If you look at that negatively, it means that those Christians who live out their Christian life in passivity, the cruise ship deck chair sitters, are influencing others all the time, but in a negative way. When you begin to turn that positively, you realize every conversation, every prayer, the passion of my worship when I'm gathered with the saints, the intensity and reality of my prayer life when I come to prayer meetings, my consistency on Sundays and in home groups when I gather with God's people. The encouragements that I send out via instant messaging and texts. The people I bump into and have time for. The friends I call in on and bring a meal to if they've had a baby or they're struggling. They often go together. <laughs> Having a baby and struggling. <laughs> Everything that you do, everything that you are, all of your interactions, everything is part of the vine work of being a Christian. And it's only a question of whether you're doing it well, tending towards Jesus or badly, and leading others away from him. And therefore, my plea with you, friends, to understand yourself differently. To understand that the unity and the maturity and the health and the success and the full stature of the body of Christ cannot be achieved apart from you. Brothers and sisters, I hope that what we've been exploring today will first of all have reset your confidence about the future of the church. Jesus has it in hand. He's king and he's well capable of getting us to where we're meant to be. But then also that you'll see the urgency and the necessity of your own contribution to this great project. That everything you want church to be, everything you can imagine that she can be, all of the beauty and the heavenly reality that God wants to see the church embody here on earth, that is achievable only when and if you as a brother or sister in Christ Give yourself to this with all of your heart. I want to bow my head. Let's bow our heads and pray together. The next time we get to this passage, which will probably be on the 8th of January, I suspect, 
we'll begin to explore a little bit more of the practical outworking of what that looks like to be a contributing member of the body of Christ. And, but now, it, this is more, today is more about your heart posture. How you see yourself. Whether you think of yourself as necessary and essential. I want to encourage you as we bow our heads and pray, can I encourage you to take this moment to ask the Lord, Lord, would you use me? Would you change how I think about myself and my time and my, the outworking of my life?